0: a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman.
1: And I'm Mark Hopwood.
0: With us today is Raymond Goyce, professor in philosophy at the University of Cambridge, and he's here to talk with us about political liberalism. Raymond Goyce, welcome.
2: Hello, welcome.
0: In what sense are we using the term liberalism? What does political liberalism refer to?
2: Um, I in general think it's important to take a historical approach to concepts and in particular a historical approach to ethical and political concepts. And I mean by that not that somehow you shouldn't think about the usefulness of those concepts, you shouldn't think about their validity in some sense, but in addition to analyzing them, analyzing our our current usage and asking what use those concepts are, in addition to that Uh, you should also think about the origins of these concepts and where they come from and their history because I think that it's neither the case that as it were in politics we start from nowhere and we can treat these concepts as if they came from nowhere and we can treat these concepts as if they simply referred to whatever institutions we have around at the moment. That's not right nor is it right that they're simply historical things that have no internal logic and can't be evaluated. So I want very much to reject the dichotomy between analysis and history and to say that there's nothing wrong with thinking that you can do both of those things together. And that means not allowing either one of them to be lost from sight. So in the case of liberalism, I think It's one of those concepts that now is used in such a wide variety of senses that it practically has no meaning at all. It's very, very hard to find someone who doesn't describe his or her position as in some sense liberal, just as it's very hard to find any regime in the world now that doesn't in some sense call itself democratic. So the term has become so amorphous that it practically means nothing. And I think that's a big difficulty with using it as a central way of thinking about our society and certainly it's a difficulty in using it as not just a central way of thinking about our society but as a normative concept that will direct us. I think concepts like that we have to try to get as clear about them as we can and we have to think about the sharp edges that they might have to the extent to which they have such sharp edges and so I think it's very important not to take it for granted. If you think about it historically, it seems to me, you can see that the thing we call liberalism is the result of a long historical tradition in which a number of different components, which originally were rather different from one another, come together and come to seem to be naturally connected. And I think this is, in general, the way in which a lot of history, the history of ideas, works. Different things get put together, and they get put together to form what seem to be natural or obvious units And as they come to seem natural units, they secrete around themselves a certain kind of appearance of self-evidence. They seem to be obvious. And you can understand why that's the case. That's a good political strategy. It's a good political strategy if you have a certain position to try to convince people that the position is coherent and that the parts naturally hold together. So it's natural that somehow these political concepts will Politicians will cover over the discrepancies in the history of these things. So for example, democracy and liberalism. We think of democracy and liberalism as more or less the same sort of thing. But of course, liberalism is committed usually to some notion of toleration some notion of the ability of individuals to make their own lives. And as you know, democracy originally had nothing to do with toleration. It had to do, in the Greek world, with the power of the community to do whatever it wanted to do, including, for example, ostracizing some individual on no grounds. So the ancient democracy was a democracy in which, if you were unpopular for whatever reason, you could be ostracized. You could be put to death. And also, you know, in the ancient world democracy was thought to be connected naturally with the lack of elections. Right? An ancient democracy was a democracy based on filling all positions at random by lot from people. Because an election elections were thought to be inherently undemocratic because they were meritocratic. You elected the best person, not just anyone. So liberalism, democracy, we think of them as connected. But they're actually very different sorts of things that get connected in the 19th century in a particular way. And I think internal to liberalism is the same kind of thing. There's one strand that comes from toleration and the idea of toleration and the idea of religious toleration. And that's one important component of it. There's another strand that comes from the idea of voluntariness as being more important in human life than force that it's better to have voluntary associations than associations based on force. There's a third strand, which is a strand about power and people's fear of excessive power, fear of the concentration of power, fear of a discretionary kind of power. There's another strand which is connected with individuals, with the centrality of the individual over the group. In the 19th century, there's another very strong strand, which is connected with laissez-faire economics. So liberalism, if you look at it seriously, is a thing with a kind of history in which there are these different components, and the components enter into different configurations at different times. And it seems to me it's really important to see that fact because it makes you more reflective in thinking about liberalism in the modern world. You no longer will be able to say, oh, liberalism requires this, if you know that liberalism is both a rather amorphous term, and that it's historically a term in which a number of different strands have come together and been fit together under the demands of particular forms of political action. So I think that's the first thing I'd say about liberalism, that it's like Christianity or it's like democracy. It's one of these terms that's connected with political movements, follows in a sense from the logic of political argumentation. And historically, it's a conjunction of different things that don't necessarily go together but about which we have a strong tendency to assume that they naturally go together. So that's the first thing I'd say about liberalism, and I think that's a very important thing. Then the second thing, I think, is that one of the particular components of liberalism that I'm I'm particularly worried about, I'm particularly concerned about, are two components, actually. One is the centrality of the notion of consensus, and the other is the notion of neutrality. And a lot of modern conceptions of liberalism depend on this notion of neutrality or notion of consensus as being central. And now I have an easy time, as it were, with the notion of neutrality because I can just say, well, I just don't think that it's possible to get a notion of neutrality that is sensible and that will actually also do the normative job that liberals want it to do. There is no neutrality in that sense. You can either get a notion of neutrality that will cover all sorts of things, but that will be empty. Or if you don't have that, you'll have one that has substance. But if you have a concept that has substance, it won't actually be neutral. So I I just think that is a complete mistake, to think about neutrality as itself a generator of value, a generator of substantive value in political discourse. The other one is consensus, of course, and we could perhaps talk about that.
1: So that's very helpful. So from what you've said, there are a couple of reasons why one might think that liberalism is a really hard thing to bring under criticism. So one reason is, as you've said, it's a very large and varied concept. It's not even clear whether it's one concept at all.
2: It's a moving target.
1: It's a moving target, precisely. And the second reason is that, in a sense, you might say we're all liberals now or something of that nature. It's very difficult to find someone who defines their political project in a way that doesn't include at least some liberal features. And you might think that part of that is surely that these notions connected with liberalism have a certain appeal. The idea of freedom. We're all in favor of freedom. The idea of toleration. We think that's pretty good. The idea of defending the rights of the individual. Many of these concepts, perhaps this is because of the historical moment we find ourselves in, are really difficult to think yourself outside of. So maybe we could go a little bit deeper into these criticisms that you want to make. So this idea of consensus. It seems like a pretty reasonable thing to say that society should be run rather than say according to the whims or according to the views of a small subset of people Should be run according to a kind of consensus that's formed amongst all people. So maybe you could say a little more about what's problematic with that idea.
2: Okay. I think that's a good starting point for thinking about that because I think I talked about neutrality and about consensus and freedom, of course, is the other thing that's sort of an appeal. The difficulty I have with consensus is not a difficulty that has the following form. It isn't that I think that lack of consensus is a good thing. And it isn't that I think that it's really better to push people around than to agree with them. I don't think either of those two things. What I think is that consensus must be treated as an empirical concept just like other empirical concepts. That is, It's not a concept that describes the necessary conditions for any form of society. Or rather, if you mean by consensus something which is a description merely of the necessary conditions of any possible society, you're using consensus in a transcendental sense, And I'm very skeptical about the ability that people have to move from that transcendental sense of consensus to anything that's politically actual. Because in that sense of consensus, the members of concentration camps had consensus with their guards. Because, after all, if consensus is the condition on which all forms of social interaction rest, well, that was a form of social interaction. It worked for a while, and so there is a consensus there. What I'm saying is so you can expand the concept of consensus and give it basically no content, and then it can encompass all of these things. But, of course, you don't want it politically to be that kind of universal, empty, concept, transcendental concept. You want it to be something concrete. You want to say the people in the concentration camps did not stand in a relation of consensus to the guards. And that's a different sense of consensus it seems to me. That's a much more limited notion of consensus. I don't see that you can derive that sense from the more general sense. So if we take consensus then in this more empirical way, there too what do we mean exactly by consensus? Either we mean something that's empirically very well defined, namely, you have consensus if everyone goes into the booth and checks the same box. And now all I'm saying is that's a perfectly reasonable sense in which you can use the term consensus. But you can have a consensus in that sense which has no normative, no overwhelming normative power. The Nazis can get together and they all check the same box. You know, nothing much follows from that. That's just one empirical phenomenon among others. The the notion of consensus gets its power when you connect those these particular empirical characteristics, checking the box or not rising up or not throwing stones at them, you connect that with some kind of normative demand that's made on people. And what I merely want to point out is that it's absolutely essential to see that when you talk about consensus there, there's always room to reflect and say, although whatever the situation is, if it's a situation that satisfies these conditions for being a consensus, um, there's a split between that. It's still an open question what the normative standing of that is. And given that it's an open question, you can't as it were simply connect those two things. So that's the second objection that I have to the notion of consensus. The third objection I have to the notion of consensus is the idea that I think you find in liberalism that really everything can be brought under consensus. That consensus is universal, not in that it's a precondition for all human action, but that somehow every human disagreement can be resolved by consensus. And there too, actually, that's not a thing that a lot of early liberals thought. As you know, John Stripmill didn't think that. He thought that, you know, Indians were incapable of, uh, uh, of sort of civilized activity, and all they could hope for is an enlightened ruler. So a lot of early liberals were very aware of that. But I mean, contemporary, especially contemporary North American liberalism, tends to operate on the assumption that, well, consensus is always possible. And I merely want to say it isn't proved that it's always possible. It isn't proved that if it is possible, the result will be good. And you must be very clear about the empirical conditions under which it's to be aspired to. And sometimes sometimes the search for consensus is not the right option. Uh, if you're confronted with the National Socialists, you don't try to reach consensus with them. They are extreme cases, but politics has to take account of the fact that there are sometimes also extreme cases. And so, I mean, although I oppose the war in Iraq, I don't in principle think that there's some logic of the notion of consensus which makes it literally incoherent or irrational simply to say well we're not going to look for consensus w- with those people we're you know we can't find consensus with them we have to find something else to do now then of course it's an open question what you do you might manipulate them you might change the background conditions you might try to influence them or you might have to use force and all i'm saying is that's an open question it's not prejudged by the logic of neutrality or prejudged by the centrality of the notion of consensus. And I think that's, and societies it seems to me, are much more conflict-ridden than people give them credit for being. And if you look at the world through the spectacles of the liberal, you're looking at the world, looking at it, looking for consensus, looking for consensus. and. Sometimes that's a perfectly reasonable way to look at the world. If you're living in a very rich society, where you know, if you're at the University of Chicago and you're you're talking with your colleagues, that's a perfectly reasonable way to do it. But I think generalizing from those local cases in which here I am, I'm I'm at home in Cambridge with my friends, and we will look for consensus. Or you're here at the University of Chicago, you're looking for. Generalizing from that to the view that here is whoever is your favorite dictator, and here we are, and now we should look at that through the lens of consensus, doesn't seem to me to be self-evidently the right way to proceed politically.
0: So one question I have about that is, is this a critique specifically of liberalism, or is it a critique of any, as it were, universalizing tendency in political philosophy to take a specific case of something that works and to try to say that that's what we always should do?
2: Um, I'm a sort of a determinate and rabid anti-Kantian, I just detest the Kantian way of looking at the world, but I try to be fair-minded too. And one of the things that I think he did see, which is an important general philosophical feature, is that we have a kind of natural tendency as human beings to orient ourselves to things that we understand in our immediate environment. So we understand in our immediate environment what it is to be a nice person and to try to enter into consensus with our friends. And Kant, I think, says, well, we have a natural tendency to generalize from those cases. And at a certain point, we overgeneralize from those cases. So I see that there's a cause of this, and I see that there's a cause of that. In every case I investigate, I find that there are causes. I have a natural tendency then to think there is a cause of everything. And that's the generation of the concept of God, as you know, Kant thinks. And at a certain point then, you go beyond the balance of experience. So my own view is a bit, in that sense, like Kant's view, that we must be very careful to see the limitations of our own way of thinking about the world. That doesn't mean that we can't generalize. It doesn't mean that we can't generalize from the very privileged life we lead as members of wealthy societies privileged in being able to attend university, so it doesn't mean we can't generalize from that, but it means we have to be really, really careful in each case to see whether we're going beyond the bounds of the appropriate uh, generalization from this particular situation that we have. And what I'm saying is that's part of the plausibility of a political ideologies and part of the plausibility of liberalism. I like to be free. I don't like you to push me around. I like us to be in consensus. That's perfectly fine. Now, we're going to do that for the whole world, and that just strikes me as not necessarily false, but a, a step that needs to be taken seriously as a further step. You can't take it for granted. You have to think about the implications of it. That's really all I'm saying
1: in some ways it seems like what you're cautioning us against is a certain kind of hypocrisy so as you say we can look back to certain historical periods where for example in the westward expansion of the united states there was a society that was in some sense built on consensus but it was also one that was displacing by force other people in order to grow itself or here at the university of chicago we might look at improvements made on campus and see those as the result of consensus among equals on campus. We might look at changes happening in the neighborhood of Woodlawn to the south and think, well, that's happening on the basis of consensus as well, when really it isn't. It's the fact that powerful and rich people to the north displace the poor people who live in those neighborhoods by a process that's nothing like consensus. With the possibility of universalization comes the possibility of a certain kind of hypocrisy and blindness to the actual forces that are governing society.
2: That's very important, and there are two things I'd say to that. One is I would be slightly resistant to using the category of hypocrisy because that, in my view, attributes too much almost conscious duplicitousness on the part of people, and I think that many of these processes the people who hold these views, they're liberals. I mean, there is liberal hypocrisy, but it isn't the case that all liberals are hypocrites. They genuinely believe what they think, and they genuinely have reasons for that. I'm not saying there's no reason for this. I'm not saying this that this is just a mistake. And so I'd be slightly uncomfortable about using hypocrisy. I'd like to retain the term hypocrisy for particular kinds of active duplicitousness uh, in things. And I don't think that these are not processes that operate on that level. They operate in a more deeply rooted way. But the other part of what you said I think is something I I would agree with. I mean, it is very important for us to realize that we're all self-centered. That's part of who we are as human beings. We see the world from our own point of view. We see ourselves as much more central to the world than we actually are. and we have a tendency to want to think well about ourselves. We have a tendency to want always to tell the nicest story about who we are and what we're doing. That's a natural human tendency. I don't go around saying I'm a, I'm a horrible person. So I think that's an important phenomenon too that, of course, it's going to be difficult for large institutions to say, yes, You know, Goldman Sachs doesn't say we're horrible, vicious, completely self-centered, greedy, utterly destructive uh, corporations, and we're going to get away with everything we can. That's not the story they say. The story they say is, well, the generation of profit is extremely important for keeping the economy. In Britain, they, you know, we say they're wealth producers, right? They they don't say they're greedy, self-centered corporations. They say we're wealth creators. And in that case, of course, there is a certain kind of hypocrisy involved because they know very well that they're not doing it to create wealth and in fact they'll do anything they can to destroy wealth. Uh, but I wouldn't in general uh, want to say that that must always be the case in the case of liberalism. So I think those two things, separating the individual moralizing aspect from this from the more systemic uh, things, that's one thing that's important. And the other thing that's important is just to remember how hard it is for us to overcome wishful thinking, how hard it is for us to overcome in particular the wishful thinking which makes us seem to ourselves and others not necessarily always to be pursuing the most noble of projects, but at least not to be doing something that's actively destructive. Uh, you know there's this famous description, I don't know what's known here about this series of books, The Little House on the Prairie, which you know I've heard described as part of the literature of genocide. Well the little girl in The Little House on the Prairie didn't see herself, you know she was not hypocrite, none, none of the people involved in that book were hypocrites but they were exterminating the native populations. That was part of the whole, they weren't doing it themselves either. I mean, they never killed, I'm sure they never killed an Indian. So I want to get it away a bit from the individual level and see it in slightly more systemic terms.
1: So one thing that one might be wondering at this stage is where do we go from here? If from within the very dominant liberal paradigm, we want to be critical of liberalism, does that mean that All we really want to do is make certain small incremental adjustments or we want to try not to be too destructive so far as it is in our power. Or is there any sense that what we should be doing is looking for a fundamentally different form of political organisation? So where does your project go from here?
2: Well, I think mine is different from that of most other people in that I'm very keen on retaining as much of a grasp as we can have on certain utopian impulses. I'm very keen on the ability that humans have to imagine radically different forms of life and the power we have of transforming some of those imaginative constructs into practical forms of action. That doesn't mean that I think that, as it were, every such imagined alternative can be realized. I think it's important to see that there's a kind of Spielraum, there's a kind of field of play, there's a there's a gap between action and the imagination. And one of my disagreements with pragmatism is that the tendency that many pragmatists have to reduce the imagination just to action in the world, I think it's very important to keep those two things apart. And I think there's also nothing wrong with having forms of the imagination that that aren't immediately realized because they can become part of the culture and they can have a long, long life in the culture waiting until they can be realized. So the fact that at the moment we can't do anything, the fact that at the moment we might be locked into a system in which we have no power of controlling except in minor ways, doesn't mean that it's not somehow important for us to keep a grasp on the possibility of a radically different kind of life even though we might be realistic enough to realize that that form of life is not available to us at the moment, if we keep it in mind and it informs our art and certain forms of our practice and our discussion, that in itself, it seems to me, is something that's of value. Because even if we know we can't realize it, it will have some effect on the way we act now. It won't be just nothing. It won't be realized, but it won't be nothing. You know, if you really believed in Calvinism, even if you didn't realize it in every respect of your life, it guided you in a certain kind of way. And also because these things have a kind of historical inertia. And so the utopian desires and wishes that people had and have can come to inform later forms of practice. That's why I'm interested in poetry. And as one thing. I'm very interested in this uh, Paul Ceylon, And he was very interested in an anarchist thinker, Gustav Landauer, who had a theory of utopia and I mean, that's part of the reason I'm interested in that.
0: So maybe you could uh, go into that a bit more. What role exactly is there for art to play in helping us develop our political imagination? You know, it seems like many people think of art as something you do to escape from politics, but it sounds like you're thinking of it in a rather different way.
2: I think that escaping from politics is a kind of politics, after all. I mean, you escape from politics because Politics at the moment is intolerable or unworkable or impracticable. So I'm not very happy with that distinction. On the plane over, I reread one of my favorite novels, which is a novel that everyone else who has any kind of fine grained aesthetic sensibility hates, but I actually just love. And that's Flaubert's Salambeau. As you know, Flaubert's Salombeau is about the war between the Carthaginians and the mercenaries they hired. The Carthaginians were trying to get a, a firm political hold on Sicily. They had a different social structure from the Roman social structure in that they in general didn't use their citizens as warriors. They were a commercial city. They hired mercenaries, large numbers of mercenaries on the island of Sicily. The Carthaginians lose the first Punic War to the Romans. All the mercenaries come back to northern Africa, and the mercenaries then turn against the Carthaginians because the Carthaginians don't pay them. And so there's a long discussion. And Flaubert, of course, what I like about this novel is that this is Flaubert working against the natural grain. I mean, he's really good in l'education sentimentale and in Madame Bovary in talking about giving a realistic description of the world around him. He's a realist novel. It's the novel of 19th century provincial French adultery and the novel of the failure of the 1848 uprising. And so he's really good at that. And now he does a novel that's completely different from that. It's this pseudo-Orientalist, completely over-the-top fantastic description of this war between Carthaginians, a society that didn't stopped existing, doesn't exist, and these mercenaries. And he says about the novel, as you know, personne ne divine pas Combien il a fallu être triste pour revivier Carthage. Nobody will know how sad I had to be in order to bring Carthage back to life. So there's this description there of this incredibly different world in which the politics of Carthage is completely different. It's embedded in this kind of religious sensibility. The mercenaries are different groups. They're in conflict with each other. And I just think that... That's the kind of thing uh, novels can do, and that having an imaginative picture of that kind in one's mind gives one a different relation to one's own political reality. That's one way. Another way is the rather abstract way of Paul Ceylon, who operates by trying to undercut everyday language in every way possible. So Ceylon says, everyday language and everyday forms of thought are not, as the Romantic poets thought or as ordinary language thought, sources of insight, sources of refreshment, sources of spiritual sustenance. Rather, everyday life and the embedded forms of linguistic discourse are corrupt. They are degenerate. They are distanced. They're wrong. They're conformist being forced to talk in the way everyone else talks can be construed as a way of being put under kind of oppression. So we have to write poems that are completely different from that by virtue of using words in a completely different way. So we take a number of different words, we put them together, we condense them, we put them together in different conjunctions And we write something which is, at the same time, just on the border of being comprehensible to us. If you read it enough, you can change what you can come to understand. And I think that experience of confronting a poem that seems completely opaque on the first reading, but after 15 readings begins to yield a certain kind of sense, is an image of ways in which we can change and ways in which we can get out of these stifling forms of everyday speech and everyday ways of thinking and acting that have these negative properties. So on the one hand there's this more graphic political imagination in Salambeau and in the other hand there's this kind of Ceylon-esque breaking down of ordinary language and reconstruction of it in in a way that causes us to perform the action of getting out of our normal ways of speaking and thinking.
0: Raymond Goys, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you for inviting me.
0: To listen to future episodes of Elucidations, you may consult our website at philosophy.uchicago.edu slash podcasts.